Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast, Money Talk, for Thursday, the 16th of November. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, President Joe Biden and President Xi Jinping have arrived at a historic estate south of San Francisco and commenced a bilateral meeting along with other American and Chinese officials. It's their first meeting in more than a year. And afterwards, President Xi will attend a dinner with hundreds of business executives, including chief executive officers of major U.S. companies such as Tesla, Microsoft, Citigroup and ExxonMobil. In opening remarks at the start of the meeting, President Xi said the China-US relationship is the most important bilateral relationship in the world. And he said it should develop in a way that benefits our two peoples and fulfills our responsibility for human progress. Gauges of consumer and industrial activity in China grew faster than expected in October, adding to hopes of improvement across the mainland economy where domestic demand has struggled to gain traction. China's retail sales rose by 7.6% year-on-year in October, accelerating from a 5.5% gain in the prior month and exceeding market estimates of 7%. Industrial production rose the most in six months, expanding by 4.6% year-on-year in October, but investment in real estate plunged by 9.3%. Japan's economy shrank by more than expected during the third quarter amid slowing global demand and rising domestic inflation. Japan's GDP fell 2.1% on an annualised basis in the third quarter after a downwardly revised 4.5% growth in Q2. Economists had been expecting a 0.6% fall and this was the first yearly contraction in economic activity in Japan since the fourth quarter of 2022. UK inflation fell far more than expected last month The consumer price inflation rate dropped to 4.6% in October. That's down from 6.7% in both September and August, and well below economists' forecasts of 4.8%. And that's the lowest rate in two years. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Mark Toe, Managing Director of Asset Management at the Wing Fung Financial Group. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. If you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com and take a look at my daily newsletter, which has more business and finance news from across China and the rest of Asia. On Wall Street's Wednesday, US shares continued their strong November rally, boosted by the weaker-than-expected CPI report, and further data on Wednesday showed US producer prices declining half a percent in October, the biggest drop since April 2020, and signalling inflationary pressure continues to ease. The S&P 500 advanced 0.2%, closing at 4,503. The Dow added 164 points, that's half a percent, closing at 34,991. The Nasdaq Composite inched higher by 0.1% and ended at 14,104. The yield on the benchmark 10-year US Treasury added 9 basis points to trade at 4.54%. Gold gave back around half of Tuesday's gains. It ended the day 0.2% lower at $1,959 an ounce. Brent crude oil slid 1.6% to settle at $81.18. The US dollar index rose a third of a percent to 104.41 on Wednesday, attempting to recoup some of the sharp losses from the previous day, but remaining close to its weakest level since early September. 
The dollar recovered 0.7% against the yen to 151.37. The offshore yuan appreciated past 7.24 per dollar at one stage, hovering at its strongest levels in two months, as China reported better than anticipated retail sales and industrial, industrial production numbers for October. This morning, the Chinese currency is 0.1% weaker at 7.2578 renminbi per US dollar. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite, that rose 0.6% to 3,073, hitting its highest level in a month. And Hong Kong stocks led Asia higher on Wednesday following the better-than-expected economic data from China and also helped by news that the PBOC pumped the largest amount of cash into the banking system since 2016. The Hang Seng Index surged 682 points, or 3.9%, to 18,079. That's its highest level since November the 7th. For November so far, the city's benchmark index is up 5.6%, but for the year to date, it's down 8.6%, making it the worst performer out of the major equity indices globally. The tech index soared 4.4%. Looks like the Hang Seng's going to add about another 110 points or so at the open this morning. That's about 0.6%. Futures markets pointing to the Hang Seng starting the day at around about 18,190. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. We're edging our way towards the end of the week. Let's welcome our Thursday morning guests. We have with us our regular Thursday morning commentator, Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Morning, Andrew. Good morning. And also with us is Mark Tome, Managing Director of Asset Management at the Wing Fung Financial Group. Welcome back, Mark. Nice to talk with you again. Good morning. Good morning. Um, let's start with uh, the economic activity uh, numbers that we saw out of China. Gauges of consumer and industrial activity in China grew faster than expected. Um, let's start with the retail sales. Grew by 7.6% year on year in October, accelerating from a 5.5% gain in the prior month and exceeding market estimates of 7%. It was the 10th straight month of increases in retail turnover and also the fastest growth uh, since May. For the January to October period, retail sales increased by 6.9%. That's uh, just a smaller increase than the previous uh, period. The measures benefited from comparison with a year earlier when China was in the final stages of a three-year anti-pandemic policy that stifled economic activity. Um, Andrew, what are your thoughts on, first of all, the retail sales numbers, seeing signs of improvement there? Yeah, there are, but remember, they come off from a very low base year before. <clears throat> this is always, always forgotten, and it has to be kept in mind. Mm. It looks good because it has a low base. Actually, I take a slightly less optimistic view because industrial output, although it increased, my God, it increased by 10 basis points. Give me a break. It mm -hmm. went from 4.5 to 4.6. Before that was 4.5, and before that was 3.7. Now it was this basically flat. That's okay. It's not coming down, but it's not increasing. And of course, uh, fixed asset uh, investment <coughs> came down. Mm -hmm. 3.2. 2.1, 2.9 the last three months. Uh, you know, we have retail sales, which is supposed to finally drive the economy, increasing quite substantially on the basis of a low base effect. And then uh, we have items like industrial output and investment, either flat or coming down. 
Well, you know, I, I, I you know, I, I wish I don't want to, to to take the punch ball away from the party, or to be continuously, you know, sitting there saying, you know, the Chinese economy is doing badly. But on the other hand, looking at really key components, yeah, I don't see anything hugely exciting here. So you're basically saying that despite the improvement in the number, this is not really a sort of a, a permanent up, upshift in uh, consumer spending habits. Well, you know, you have, you have a big economy and now quite a sophisticated economy. And from, for us collectively to say that uh, it is going to make it to a 5% uh, at the end of the year, uh, a number of things will have to be improving, not just one thing. And if I take some, I'm, I'm just like any random thing. I'm not telling you, you know, the amount of spaghetti sold in China has come down. Well, big deal. But if I look at industrial output and I look at in, uh, investment expenditures, and they're actually either flat or decreasing, and retail sales are doing better on the basis of, uh, of a low base effects, well, you know, I would prefer to see a little bit better quality and quantity. Actually, quantity. <laughs> Mark, you spend a lot of time on the mainland. When you're there, are you seeing signs of uh, from the consumer that is getting more optimistic and more hopeful, matching what this data is saying? What What's your feeling? Well, uh, in terms of the data, I uh, concur with uh, Andrew uh, entirely. Uh, actually, the low base effect is uh, very dominant at, at this moment. And, uh, and I also agree with him that um, the overall situation i think it is just flat uh, at, at best uh, but uh, uh, the little bit uh, difference between uh, andre and, and and i is that i uh, may, maybe maybe it is not warranted uh, but i have that kind of uh, optimism maybe you you can say that it is home bias uh, for for <laughs> investors uh, yeah uh, but I, I tend to think that uh, the recent moves uh, not just in the um, uh, fiscal policy, monetary policy, but also in the uh, diplomatic efforts uh, between the nations that they're going to uh, avoid the clashes, uh, whether they are just gestures or the preparation for the future elections or for the other things, it may, it may all be. But uh, at this moment, I think that at least these are the good signs. And uh, for the investors, uh, what we look for is not just... Um, uh, definite uh, uh, good stories. Uh, some, sometimes uh, you, you may say uh, no news is good news. Not worse news uh, is is already some something uh, better than expected. I, I would take that uh, uh, for 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 what I'm going to to um, to uh, to live with at, at this moment. I, I I know the reality, but I deal with it. Mm. Is, is you mentioned that we're obviously comparing with a year ago and you've got that base effect we've had that now for several months when we look at it is there a way of sort of taking that out and working out what is really happening with retail sales do, do we look at what month to month growth or year to date compared to the previous year to date period what's the best way of working out what's really going on here yeah, uh, I tend to think that the um, in terms of consumption, um, whether it is uh, in, on on the retail level or in the, in the other in the other uh, other stages of the production process, I I, I think that the uh, it, it takes time for mm. the expectations to uh, to gradually uh, persist. And uh, I think that it, it takes time uh, for for people, basically because of the permanent income uh, theory, you may say the hypothesis. 
because um, they they have lost somehow they have, they have lost the confidence in the past few years if not that if not the the, the past decade. Uh, so it, it it is really really hard for them to to form an expectation. But I I think that it is somehow even if it is not the uh, exact uh, uh, global global mean, I think it is at least the local mean. Andrew, there's the same feature this month that we've seen last month, which is that when you look at the data, retail sales, um, industrial production increase, but fi- fixed asset investment, less rosy. And once again, anything to do with real estate looks bad. Investment in real estate plunged by 9.3%. That's worse than the previous month when it was down 9.1%. It just seems that the real estate sector is still uh, the big drag on the economy. Uh, yes, and my favorite gloomy index, that's the index for the new uh, property prices in 40 major and minor cities, continues to be for 18th month going. Now, 18 months, one and a half year, negative. Mm. You know, they're flat or increasing very slowly, they keep falling. And the September number was uh, not huge numbers, but negative numbers, 0.57. And it was like that in the last three months. So in other words, for, for one, one quarter of a period, till the most recent days we have, property prices they keep going down. And not only that, but the CPI in China, I mean, we left it out because this is already a little bit of uh, old news. Uh, the last number we had in October was minus, was a negative. Mm, People right. said, ah, deflation in China. No, it's not deflation in China. It's simply zero inflation in China. And the same thing with the PPI. So if, in fact the producers and the consumers are acting in such a way that lead to prices coming down and that here it is not an excess of demand but it's an absence of uh, it's not an excess of uh, supply but it is an absence of demand then again that adds one more thing but since we're looking only on the figures right now you know i don't want to take any single negative figure that i have in front of me bring it out and says hey things are bad in china i mean this is a little bit nonsensical Okay, but but the big but is is no. It is flat as opposed to it is falling. Mm. Okay, in other words, a rate of inflation, a rate of inflation which is nearly zero all the time. I don't call it deflation. I simply call it complete absence of inflation. Yeah, this in, God, disinflation might be America. a better word, but disinflation. Okay, and if you gave that to the Americans and you tell them here you have zero inflation for several months at a time. And a GDP growth for 4.9. Hey, Christmas has just arrived. <laughs> I mean, what's the problem? What are the Chinese are concerned about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is a bit of a contrast, isn't there? Uh, Mark, what, what do you make of the, the property sector? I mean, we've seen that, uh, that, that figure for investments into real estate. Um, also, there's news that China plans to try and provide at least one trillion yuan of low-cost financing, which is going to go to householders rather than the property developers themselves um is this going to help yeah uh, to a certain extent i think it, it, it helps uh uh but how how much it can help uh it, it depends on on a lot of factors uh for example we have to uh, take into consideration um the, the the expectation i i think expectations matter the most uh the expectation of the future uh, policy moves, uh, whether they are going to uh, move back and forth, back and forth, like in the past few years, or they have the clear signal 
that uh, they're going to boost uh, the confidence uh, no matter what. Uh, and it, it, is, it makes a huge difference. And right now, I think the latter uh, prevails. And uh, overall speaking, I, I tend to think that the, uh, the authorities, uh, or, uh, in general, they all understand the situation very clearly, and the public, investors, uh, all, all the people, basically, all the people, all stakeholders, they understand. So at this moment, no one is going to... Um, make it even worse. Uh, they are trying to stay where they are and they're trying to uh, take whatever they, 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 they have, they, 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 are, they are granted. So if there are subsidies, if they have the low-cost financing, fine, they, they're going to take it. And gradually, I think these will set in or kick off uh, the, the process. Uh, it may take time and the self-fulfilling prophecy is not, go- is not going to be easy. But I think uh, gradually, I, I think it, it helps. But of course, it is not to be a, a one-day solution. It's going to be many months and maybe many years, isn't it? Oh, oh yeah, this? years at least, years at least, I think. Because it, it takes decades for, for the whole property market, all the sectors, all the formation of uh, expectation to 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 glue together. But but now, in, in the past decade or, or the past few years at least, uh, basically it is mental. It, it does seem, doesn't it, Mark, that the authorities have more of a sense of urgency now about the situation yeah, in, in the economy. I mean, look at what the PBOC did yesterday. They injected a net uh, 600 billion yuan into the banking system, which is the biggest liquidity injection since 2016. Um, does that sort of signal that maybe they are concerned about something? Yeah, that, that, that's a signal. I, I agree with exactly the term signal. Uh, because uh, it, it, people like to calculate on 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 the on the formulas, the the, the spreadsheet, uh, how how uh, uh, a certain amount input uh, to to become the output for 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 the maximum effect of these uh, monetary expansion. But sometimes it is not just the 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 money itself, but also how these money trigger. Uh, the other people's, the, the general public's uh, uh, confidence. I, I think expectations matters, matters most. So uh, the signal formation or all these uh, clear signals are, are very, very much uh, crucial the whole, to the whole formation process. Andrew, what do you think? Do you get the sense that there's more of a se- uh, urgency now from the central bank, from Beijing, um, to try and deal with some of these problems, as we've seen with this liquidity injection yesterday from the PBOC? Well, not only that, but there is the added amount of, I've forgotten if it is 137 uh, billion uh, UN that is going to go to subsidize in uh, local authorities, municipal authorities, and particularly in the provinces, uh, uh, renewal and uh, regeneration of existing properties into uh, uh, lower cost uh, units. So yes, it is. But but the big but is is we have two things. We have the balance sheet problem of uh, of uh, the property developers, and uh, we have the falling prices as far as uh, owners of property is concerned. And of course, that also converges back to a balance sheet problem from the property developers because because whatever stock they have, it's going to be sold at a lower lower price. Remember. One has to be very clear that we have two markets. We have the market, the second-hand market, which is between owners and owners, not owners and developers. And we have the original market, the new market, which is between developers and, uh, and, and, and purchasers. And the two things, okay, when you look at money flows in between, if the government was, let's say, 
to do something that will increase the turnover in the second-hand market, okay, this potentially, theoretically, will leave the producers, sorry, will leave the developers completely unaffected. Except, of course, if prices of second-hand property goes up, then allows new property also to go up. And so it's a little bit of a convoluted argument, but I keep seeing where is the money going to go? And if it's going to go in the hands of the owners of second-hand property, it will not necessarily solve the balancing problems of the of the developers, I keep saying producers. I mean, people that build, actually, the, the buildings. But it does seem, and doesn't it? The, what... right now, as it stands right now, it looks like it's going to go primarily more to the pockets of the owners of second-hand property. Mm, that's, what, looks... that's what I was going to say. The, the, the key message that seems to be coming here is that this money is not going to go to property developers. It may go to homeowners of various sorts, but Beijing is quite seems to be quite clear. We are not going to bail out property developers. This money is not going to go to them. Yeah, it's going to be, if there is a trickle-down effect, as I said, if second-hand prices really go through the roof, well, that's very good mm. for developers, of course. It would be stupid to say, okay, to the extent that this may also link into the purchases of newly built, as opposed to already built houses. Yeah. Okay. We'll wait. Mark, let's turn our attention to the APEX summit. President Biden, President Xi Jinping are meeting right now um, as we speak, their first uh, meeting in more than a year. Then President Xi is going to attend a dinner with um, hundreds of business um, executives. At the start of the meeting, uh, before the press were kicked out of the room, President Xi said the China-US relationship is the most bilateral, uh, the most important bilateral relationship um, in the world, and it should develop in a way that benefits the two peoples. Um, President Biden also uh, spoke. He said uh, that he wants to improve the U.S. relationship with China, um, and he wants to help. And he was interested in helping China's economy. He said that uh, the U.S. would benefit if the average citizen in China had a decent-paying job. Uh, so, Mark, what what do you expect from this? Do, I mean, obviously, again, there's a signalling effect here, isn't there, in the fact that at least they're meeting, um, and at least that's positive. But do you expect much to come from this? I I didn't have much expectations, so I am not disappointed by anything of it. And I, actually, I think um, uh, the, the the remarks by uh, by President Biden it can be taken in a, if you if you like. Some people may take it in a negative way. Uh, yeah, because uh, are you going to help us? Are you going to help? Uh, yeah, the, the the whole thing about free trade is that it is mutually beneficial. Uh, that kind of exchange uh, facilitates all people. They benefit all people. It is not uh, some kind of welfare payment. It is not some kind of a I help you out. No, that is not no, that is not the case. And if the mainland Chinese authorities uh, take it the negative way, it, I I I think it may it may it may not help much. But of course, as I said earlier, I, I didn't have high expectations. And anyway, at least a signal, I agree with you, at, at least it signals uh, that the, the, the uh, potential clashes, uh, the immediate threat uh, may be, may be um, a little bit uh, slowed down. And uh, also these uh, parties or these uh, stakeholders, these leaders, they all understand that it is not at the best interest at this moment to push forward to to more clashes. But of course, 
I don't. I'm. I'm not uh, naive. I don't think that they they are just stop like like that and and have the peaceful solution and go back to 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 the last uh, 40, 40 years to to be to be like that. No, I I don't think that. I don't think that. I always have. I always have a profound distrust about face to face meetings of leaders of major countries, because in the Western style of democracy. When you meet and you hit it off very well with a politician, then there is absolutely no guarantee that in three years' time you will not never meet him again. Apparently, Merkel was immensely popular with people that met her, and so now it's gone forever. Mm. Okay, so, uh, Biden having a good relationship with Xi, I think it's excellent. Okay, but if Biden is not elected in a year's time, then all that Xi has taken out of that is going to be thrown out of the window when Trump becomes the president. I mean, it, it is a, a very short-termistic thing. Secondly, is I don't believe for one moment that people that have their fortune and the future of major countries in their hands, they will sit down and they will agree over four hours of major issues. You know, I always much prefer the idea of meeting socially, having a good drink, and then they leave the negotiations to their civil servants. Because this is how it's going to be sorted out. I mean, for God's sake, what is C is going to tell to Biden, please, can you get off Taiwan? And Biden says, yeah, yeah, all right, we've overdone it. Promise you, we'll never do that again. It ain't going to happen. This is not a a policy which is reversed by being nice to each other. So I, I, I consider this to be... I have to be very careful here because I don't mean it in any way disrespectfully. It is a kind of a political theater. <laughs> okay, in other words, it is for public consumption. It is very important to see that these people are not quarreling. Okay, but uh, the actual detailed issues that can be discussed cannot be possibly resolved by Biden says, you touch Taiwan and we're going to bomb you. It's, he's not going to say it. Neither will, of course, if it was to say, she will accept it, okay? And he will say, well, you know, don't be silly. We will bomb you straight back. Come on, I'm, 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 I'm reducing it to, to a very naive level. Mm. That's why also it's the first time they have met in five years, I think. Four yep. years. Well, well they, they met know, last year in Indonesia, didn't they? And then what? Well, they will be on the phone every day? You know, it, these things don't work like that at all. Mm. And say, uh, somebody says, well, this is the most important meeting. Sorry, this is the most important relationship in the world. I would sit here and with a big smile on my face and I say, as far as I'm concerned, the most important relationship in the world is that between myself and my wife. <laughs> but, then, but then we don't run the world. <laughs> yeah, but, but when you meet with your wife, you don't have gangs of reporters there <laughs> to, to follow your every move. Yeah, neither we have a translator at the back. You know, I don't want to ridiculize it, but uh, <laughs> a lot of the theater is, 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 is missed out. Theater, I mean, it is a public display. Even mm. the fact that they I'd like to know what they talk for four hours, for God's sake. Mm. What? And can they convince each other? Can Biden says, look, Taiwan is basically an independent country. Don't treat it like a province. And she says, you know, you might be right. I mean... Yeah, I'm being I'm being completely ridiculous now. You know what I mean? You know, mm. it, it doesn't it just doesn't work like that.
It, it does seem, Mark, doesn't it, that the, the two leaders are sort of dancing around each other and also they have different audiences that they're trying to reach here. Biden obviously has an election coming up. He's got a uh, play to Congress and, and the American uh, sort of public. Uh, President Xi seems to be more interested in meeting the business leaders and trying to convince um, people to invest in America and in, in, the, in China. And, and he needs to buy some time as well to try and get the economy to improve. Yeah, yeah, of course, uh, they have different audiences. And, and, and I think the, the whole situation is that, uh, of course, they have to take care of the, the own, uh, the, you may say, the self-interest of, of, of their own country. And I, I think it is uh, very natural and um, it, it, it is good for their, so to speak, good for their expectations management uh, because they take care of their own stakeholders, I think. I agree with you. Mm. Okay. Um, I want to switch topics a little bit. I want to talk about some of the data that we've had um, elsewhere on inflation. Uh, we had from the US, core consumer price inflation has dropped uh, to a two-year low, hit 3%, down from 3.7% in September. Also, the PPI, which came out yesterday, down the most since April 2020. <coughs> Producer prices are now declining um, half a percent uh, month on month. Uh, if you look at the UK, um, inflation in the UK has hit a two-year low. Um, Andrew, let me start with you, first of all. I'm wondering, um, have the central banks overdone it here? It seems like the data that we're seeing now is showing inflation is falling quite rapidly. Yeah, it's falling quite rapidly, but they can't have it both ways. You, know, you cannot tell me that my target is 2% and uh, I'm still uh, 50% away from, from the target. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's doing very nice, uh, 3.2. Okay, it was nice. I'm looking at that. The CPI in the UK was in the United States with 3.7, 3.7. That's over September, now 3.2 in October. Very good. Also, the core has come down. Well, not hugely, but has come. Okay, so so what? You know, I want to see 2% heat, and then it stays there for six months then obviously it stays there, then they can begin to cut. It hasn't happened. So, you know, this business of project and saying, hey, you know, they're going to be cutting soon. Either we believe that they mean 2% and they didn't put the 2% as a kind of a moving target. And once they hit it, three is, they will say, ah, what the heck? Okay, that's enough. I mean, let's go home now. Because then, of course, then, they lose complete, let's say, seriousness in what they do. A target is a target. And if you are going to change the target, you have to tell us early on why you change the target, why the target now is going to be 3% and 2% as opposed to 2%, and uh, what, what happens next. So, uh, you know, jumping to the conclusion that uh, the next stage is going to be cutting interest rates, you know, I always personally... I do my own little calculations and I say on the basis of that and on the basis of how fast the inflation has been going down and everything else remaining unchanging, inflation will go 2% in perhaps six months' time. And then I want it to stay there for another minimum three, if not four to five months at 2%. So we're already talking nearly one year. And actually Powell has signaled that. And then I would say, yeah, we've done it. So now we can start cutting interest rates. And that ain't going to happen. And I am absolutely certain it's not going to happen. And they may very well decide to start cutting interest rates earlier than later, and therefore throw all the confidence things completely out of the window. Mm. 
Okay. It's not a 2%. I'm not saying 2% should have been it. Well, they, they said that I did. <laughs> okay. So, God, what I'm telling you is I'm nonplussed. Okay. Yes, no. Down, but I want it at two percent. I take their words, your words, not my words, their words. Two percent stays there for quite a while. Then, of course, they come back. Mark, I'm wondering though, isn't the risk not that? Uh... Um, inflation goes down to 2% and then stays there. It's that inflation actually blows through 2% and actually turns negative and we start seeing deflation. I mean, when you look at um, things like the money supply, for example, that's turned negative. Inflation data is showing it's coming down quite fast. The central banks have tightened very rapidly. Is that the risk that people are ignoring, that actually we're going to end up uh, in deflation, which is going to have a big, big effect on uh, asset prices? Yeah, deflation is a big problem, not just for asset prices, but also for the uh, for the policymakers, for everyone. I think because the uh, the situation is getting out of control easily, and that's why uh, no matter what, we prefer uh, mild inflation at least uh, to to mild deflation, so to speak. Uh, but I think it is very difficult for uh, the current uh, inflation uh, numbers to to trend down to 2% and persist at that level uh, to meet the so-called target. I, I think the change of the target is out of the question because uh, once you change it, you change it once, you can change it at any time. And I, I think it is not, not a good idea, uh, even though it may be arbitrary, uh, a target set, uh, I think it, it is going to be sticking here. Uh, the question is that um, it takes a whole decade for money supply, for the QEs, for all these things to, to form uh, such expectations, such inflationary expectations, how can you reverse the process? That is number one. And number two, uh, it is also important because without as much free trade, uh, the prices for everyone, for every country, is going to be a little bit higher than lower. And I think it is uh, very important. It is not as easy as like in the past to have that kind of inflationary uh, uh, building embedded in the system. It is it is uh, for for the calculation wise, I think. But but um, presumably interest rates are completely uh, interest rate rises now. Further rises are completely off the table. The, the markets are pricing in zero chance now of um, of further Fed rate increases. Are they right? Uh, at, at, at this moment, I think most of the people would uh, expect that uh, at least n not for. 2023, uh, the rate hike, and even for 2024, uh, people are pricing in the, the rate cut at, at this moment. Uh, but, you know, people have been changing their expectations all the time. And uh, even among the, uh, the, the, the so-called FOMC, the, 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 the members who are the decision makers, who have the power to decide the future, so to speak, um, they may differ. And actually, they are quite data sensitive, uh, quite data dependent. Why? Because it, we are approaching or have already uh, achieved the so-called uh, sufficient restrictiveness, uh, that, that kind of status, so that without extra tightening, we are going to wait for the inflation to adjust for itself. Uh, but it is not easy. Nothing is easy at this moment. So, uh, yeah, now we, we can just wait and see. Andrew, just a final thought from you. What do you think about my um, concern that maybe the risk is to the downside, that inflation just goes straight through 2% and turns negative? Well, at, at the pace at which uh, it has been falling, at the back of very substantial increases in interest rates, 
I don't think there's a kind of an impetus that suddenly it will accelerate down to zero and uh, the Fed is going to be caught uh, having it overdone. Now, the least risky position for the Fed is, of course, is not to increase anymore. Why? Because inflation keeps coming down. Okay, and uh, they now have had, um, remember, they started, they started to hike uh, last March. Okay, so, uh, well, I would say very soon, in three or four months' time, there have been two years they have been increasing interest rates. And so interest rates would have had all the time in the world to affect the way in which prices have been moving. So as, as it is, I cannot see any strong arguments for them to say, let's tweak again because the beast hasn't died yet. Okay. Well, thank you all very much. You heard there Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Mark Toe, who is Managing Director of Asset Management at the Wing Fung Financial Group. I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at SafePro Group in Taiwan. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Now, President Xi Jinping, President Joe Biden, they're meeting at a very nice historic lodge just south of San Francisco as we uh, as we talk. We're waiting for the sound bites uh, at the end of this meeting. But uh, what are you expecting? Well, the White House has already said that the talks were candid and constructive. But that's uh, as of this conversation that we're having. That's all the information we know. President Biden is supposed to do a solo press conference where uh, we'll probably learn a little bit more. uh, But from all the talk prior to the meeting, it seems that there'll be some agreements on some of the areas that were on the agenda, possibly uh, climate change talks, possibly uh, on fentanyl and fentanyl precursors that are made in China, uh, maybe a resumption of military to military uh, uh, communications channel. And he said before the meeting that he wanted to help uh, the Chinese economy, that it would be beneficial from the US if the Chinese economy was doing well, if people had good paying jobs. So are we going to hear anything from him about what exactly he plans uh, to do to help the Chinese economy? Well, he, you know, the Chinese side wants the United States to stop restricting uh, tech exports and other types of tech uh, or chip uh, equipment. Uh, I, I doubt Biden is going to announce that. I'm not going to do any more in that area, but it was certainly something that China was seeking in, in, in the bilateral meeting. Mm. And what about President Xi? He's going to go off to this uh, dinner with loads of uh, business executives, maybe 300 of them. I think Elon Musk is going to be there, Tim Cook, a whole range of CEOs. Um, what can come out of that? I think the the, the business leaders who are attending the dinner, they, they want to get a a firsthand direct feel for how open China is to foreign business. Look, there, there's been so much media attention in recent weeks and months about uh, friendshoring, moving uh, production out of China, executives concerned about being detained, uh, concerns about what kind of data about the Chinese market uh, that, that is legal or illegal to have in one's hands. Uh, so I think the business leaders, they, they, they want to see how Xi Jinping frames China's openness for foreign investment. And, and the reason why the, the attendance uh, at a, a couple of thousand US dollars ahead is going to be so large is 
these business leaders are genuinely interested in making money in China. I mean, that much is clear. Mm. And it would also be helpful, presumably, if President Xi listened to them um, and tried to understand what it is that's driving American investors away from China, why they don't want to invest in its stock market, why foreign direct investment is dropping, uh, it's turned negative, in fact, and, and companies are repatriating uh, their, their profits um, out of China. Do you think um, he's going to be attentive to some of those concerns? Uh, he, he might allude to him in his remarks. It's hard to imagine a, a business leader uh, getting uh, Xi Jinping's ear at this dinner and saying, oh, by the way, I'm really unhappy about something or I, I really don't like a government policy. You know, that, that much is, is just unlikely, right? I don't think a company would take that risk. Mm, but presumably, um, President Xi Jinping does want to get some of this investment back. He does want to calm investors' nerves, um, persuade them to come back to China. Is, is there anything he could say at this dinner uh, that would help? He could, he'll emphasize that China is open for business and it's open for foreign business and specifically it's open for American business. Uh, well, it will be interesting to see if he cites any metrics uh, that, that are positive you know, since there's been so many negative metrics that come out of China recently, whether it's debt levels, whether it's youth unemployment, slowing GDP. Uh, so that's another thing to look for is he going to cite some specific data points uh, that, that make China attractive. Mm. Now, this is all, of course, going on on the, the sidelines of the APEC summit. The APEC summit itself has been rather overshadowed by this meeting, but it doesn't seem that the APEC summit has gone that well for, for President Biden because he's had to abandon basically his his uh, Asia-Pacific economic cooperation uh, strategy, the, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, I think it was called, wasn't it? IPEF uh, seems to have been torpedoed by Democrats in his own party. Yeah, the, the, the APEC has been overshadowed now for uh, a number of years. There are a few times that the U.S. president has not not attended, and that's unfortunately been the case with all the recent U.S. presidents. Uh, there's times when Putin hasn't attended, obviously. Uh, so when you have the important countries not attending, it kind of puts this organization in a very weak position. And look, APEC, was it's not a free trade agreement. It's not meant to be a forum for free trade. It's meant to be a forum for business facilitation. But it's become increasingly rare when we hear uh, that an APEC summit produced anything big in, in the realm of business facilitation. I mean, it's good that it still occurs, but a, a lot of the members, uh, economies of APEC are members of CPTPP and or RCEP. So they're moving on with or without APEC. Okay, well, let's turn our attention to Taiwan. The big news out of Taiwan, the two main opposition parties agreed yesterday to put their respective candidates on a joint ticket uh, for January's presidential um, election. Um, how much of a game changer is this? Well, first, let's uh, wait for them to actually adhere to the agreement. So the, the Kuomintang, or Chinese Nationalist Party, and the Taiwan People's Party have agreed to appoint a panel of uh, polling experts who are going to analyze polls from the recent from recent days and, and uh, they'll, they'll give a point to whichever one of the two candidates is ahead in a poll uh, and they'll t tally it up and then they'll declare who seems to be the more popular candidate and the loser is supposed to run as the vice president to the winner uh, we'll, we'll, again we got to wait until they adhere to that uh, assuming that they do and they do form a joint ticket with one as the presidential candidate one as the vice presidential candidate then all polls indicate 
versus Lai Qingde, William Lai, of, uh, who's the incumbent vice president and, and is the presidential candidate of the Democratic Progressive Party, it does look like they will beat him. Uh, but it's still a couple of months from the election. There's also the unknown factor, which is Terry Goh, the founder of Foxconn Honai. He also polls at about eight or nine percent. So would the voters who are voting for him, will they stick with him or will they go to a, a joint ticket of the, the KMT and the TPP? Uh, will Goh just take the initiative to leave the election and encourage his supporters to vote for that joint ticket? So there's still a bunch of unknowns here. Are the policies of the KMT and the TPP similar enough that if they run together on a joint ticket, they sort out amongst themselves who's going to be the president, who's going to be the vice president, but nevertheless run on this ticket and then form a joint government if they win? Are their policies similar enough that that would work? Well, I'm not sure if they really have any policies other than on China, historically, the Nationalist Party is, has been uh, a bigger supporter of what's called the 1992 consensus, which is this framework with China that they both uh, they agree to deal with each other and, and they agree to say there's one China and they agree to disagree on whether that's the Republic of China or the People's Republic of China. TPP, the Taiwan People's Party, seems to be, uh, and, and its leader, their presidential candidate, Ko Wenzhou, who was mayor of Taipei City for eight years, they seem to emphasize that they're about, they are about doing things in a practical way, whether that's for domestic issues or relations with China. Uh, so when it comes to domestic issues, are their policies similar? Most political parties in Taiwan, their policies are about maintaining a welfare state, building more uh, uh, government housing, build, uh, providing more for elder care. There's not much disagreement about what the policy should be. What they do agree on, the Kuomintang Nationalist Party and, and the Taiwan People's Party, they agree to, to get rid of, they both want to get rid of the DPP. They want to stop the Democratic Progressive Party, for, which has held, held the presidency for two terms, eight years. They both agree on getting rid of the DPP. So for the two of them, that's a start. So do, do the supporters of these both of, of these two parties, do they also uh, tend to agree with running on a joint ticket or are they going to lose uh, voters as a result of this? That's a great question. And people are trying to figure that out at the moment. But again, the polls indicate that a joint ticket would beat the incumbent vice president who's running for the DPP. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll take that at face value. But yes, people are questioning, will, will some very loyal Nationalist Party voters stay home because the, it's such a, a shock to them that the, the KMT formed a joint ticket with the TPP. So that remains to be seen in polling in the coming days. So I presume that China, Beijing, is going to be pleased with this. This is what they want to see or anything that, in fact, is, is likely to, uh, to defeat uh, the DPP is, uh, is, is good. So this would be something that uh, the mainland would be pleased about. Most likely, but they have to be very careful about saying anything or taking any actions that will be seen as interfering in the election, because that could lead to the, to a pro-DPP backlash. One of the things China's doing at the moment is they, they've announced an investigation into certain trade barriers that Taiwan has on goods made in China. The list of goods is over 2,000 uh, <laughs> products long. This investigation result was originally supposed to come out in October, but it's been expended, extended with a target date.
date of January 12th, which is the day before the election. So if they announce the day before the election you know, something retaliatory, for example, again, that could backfire. So maybe China now will find a way not to release that investigation report before the election. And you mentioned Terry Go. Where does he fit into all of this? He's got enough signatures now, hasn't he, to, to run more than enough. He got 900,000 valid signatures, only needed 290,000, but hasn't hasn't actually registered his candidacy yet, I, I believe. So where, where does he fit in? Yeah, the candidacy registration is next week. So uh, he did pass the signature hurdle. As of now, it looks like he'll still register his candidacy. But as I mentioned, there's the possibility that he will drop out and tell his supporters to support the uh, a joint uh, KMT-TPP ticket. He hasn't said anything yet. There will be pressure on him to do that for sure. He is polling 8 or 9%. With that, uh, with, that, with that 8 or 9%, if it went to the joint ticket of the KMT and the TPP, it would be extremely difficult for the DPP candidate to win. Mm. And I presume some of that pressure to drop out is going to come from Beijing itself. Yeah, that's an expectation as well. And uh, China's already announced a tax and land audit of, of Foxconn Honhai in China. Some many people think it's related to Terry Go being in the election. We don't know that for sure. But yes, you're right. There could be some pressure on him coming from China to allow a, a, a joint KMT TPP ticket to become even stronger. And if he doesn't drop out, um, could that cause problems for Foxconn? As you mentioned, they're being investigated on the on the mainland. Could that uh, increase pressure on Foxconn? Possibly, but unlikely for the simple reason that uh, he is not involved in the company anymore. He's not the CEO. He's not even on the board of directors. Well, yes, he is a, a major shareholder and, and certainly influential. But even just looking at his day-to-day -day activities over recent months or even the last year or so, he, he's just not involved with the company. And, mm -hmm. and the company will make that case to China. And China knows that as well. Okay, uh, Ross, great to talk to with you. Thank you for taking us through all of that. That's Ross Feingold, who's Business Development Director at Sapo Group over in Taipei. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. And do please take a look at my newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. For more information on developments during the Asian Trading Day, I'll be back tomorrow with the final Money Talk of the week when I'll be joined by Francis Lun, the CEO of Geo Securities, and Carlos Casanova, Senior Asia Economist at UBP. With a view from South Korea is Peter Kim, Head of Global Investment Strategy at the KB Financial Group in Seoul. Have a good day. Money Talk.